Welcome to the Bringing Her Hope podcast. I'm Bethany Bravery, and I'm thrilled that you are here. Each week, I invite a girlfriend on the podcast to share not only the story that God is writing for her, but the story that God is redeeming in her life. I cannot wait for you to meet each and every one of these amazing women who I know will inspire you to also live out the story that God is calling you to and to give you hope that He will be faithful to redeem your story as well. I wanted to take a moment to give a shout out to our sponsor of the Bringing Her Hope podcast, Friends of Hope. Friends of Hope is a nonprofit ministry dedicated to the support of Christian radio, Christian events, new media, and activities that share the good news of Jesus Christ. So thanks again, Friends of Hope, for sponsoring the Bringing Her Hope podcast so we can continue to share more brave and beautiful stories of God's redemption. This week are Megan and Seth Halligan. When their sweet daughter Dottie was born, they were delighted. She was their first child, healthy and full of life, wide-eyed and looking the world over. They sent pictures to their families and made it Facebook official. Dottie was a New Year's Eve baby born December 31st at 8.24 p.m. She weighed 8 pounds, 5 ounces, and was a mere 10 days past her due date. All was well until it wasn't. Friends, today we are discussing a heart-wrenching conversation with parents who love their babies fiercely. Today we attempt to immerse ourselves in the question of how do you go on when the world you know crumbles? Grab your tissues and join me on their journey. Welcome Seth and Megan Halligan. So good to have y'all. Hey, Thanks good to be here. Company. Absolutely. So please tell my friends, our listeners, a little bit about yourselves. Well, we've been married, what, seven years now? And Sounds good. Two, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, we got two kids, a little girl who's two and a half, Dorothy Louise, we like to call her Dottie, <laughs> and a son who just turned nine months old a few days ago, and that's Theodore Seth. We'll call him Teddy. And we like to call him Teddy. Yep. <laughs> I love that. And um, as you mentioned, Dottie, as we're going to call her today. Um, so, Megan, you were pregnant with her. Everything was going amazing and wonderful. And today we're kind of going to be unpacking this topic, immersing ourselves a little bit in this topic of how do you go on when the world you know crumbles? So will you just take us on your journey today? Yeah, so um, Seth and I had been living um, in China, and then we moved to Mongolia, actually, um, to be uh, to work with teachers. So I was pregnant in Mongolia, like seven, eight months pregnant, and I came back to the United States uh, to be with our family for our first birth and spend Christmas um, with our family. Uh, and have Dorothy. So I came home, and a month later, Seth came home. And, uh, yeah, everything was good. Everything was checking out fine, normal pregnancy. I went overdue. So for those moms out there, Hmm. um, the days were ticking along slowly. Christmas came and went. Still no baby. Um, And on the 30th of December, we went in um, just for a stress test, and we decided to move forward with um, being induced. Um, After a day and a half of labor, uh, our doctor, Suisi, 
said that it wasn't looking too hopeful for um, uh, natural um, vaginal birth, and so we went forward with an emergency C-section. Um, but everything went well. Dottie was healthy. She came out with eyes open looking at the world, and we were just so excited um, to have her. We made it Facebook official the next morning <laughs> and, you know, posted to the world, like, hey, she's here. We've got our girl. We shared her name, which we had kept under wraps until that point. Um yep. And yeah, everything everything seemed good. Um, the doctors, the doctor and, and nurses came in at some point early in the morning and um, took her to the NICU. So the hospital were in, the, the mom and the baby and the family kind of hang out in the NICU. Um, the neonatal intensive care unit is on a separate floor. And so they took her, they were just a little bit concerned with how she was doing, so they took her to check her out, but they were like, hey, it's totally okay, we'll bring her back in a little bit. And um, so we were new parents, we just were kind of chilling and sleeping because we were exhausted. (laughs) And uh, they brought her back, and um, as they kept watching her, she wasn't as warm as she should have. She wasn't eating very much. Um, she was spitting up, which was was relatively normal given the, um, you know, just being newly born by a C-section. And um, uh, But our nurse, we actually had, praise God, for our nurse who just wasn't feeling comfortable with mm-hmm. how Dottie was doing. Um, we had a couple of visitors family come in and then after they left um, the nurse came back in with a doctor again from the NICU and they said hey you know her coloring's a little bit off and she's not staying warm enough and we just want to take her back to the NICU to see kind of what's going on and do some extra testing and um, so Seth actually went down with her to the NICU while I um, got a little bit of a rest um, in that moment it was still pretty just like, oh, you know, we just want to check her out. You know, everybody was, nobody seemed really, really concerned, at least to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Seth can probably share a little bit more about those first moments um, of transition into realizing that, that there was something going on. Mm-hmm. So when when they took me down to the NICU, um, we went down there, and there didn't seem to be any alarm, and... The nurse was first kind of talking normal, and then say, "Oh, it could be this." And it wasn't, and it wasn't even. I don't even remember what the, what this was. Mm-hmm. I just remember tone changed. Everyone seemed on edge, and and the big thing was, well, maybe she poops, and then she did poop, which we thought, "Oh, good, we're good." Whatever this, what well, because that. We're good. Yeah. And that's when there's still no relief from some of the doctors and the nurses around me at the time. And I didn't exactly know what was going on around me. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and especially when you're a parent who can't do anything other than just hope they figure it out. Mm-hmm. So... So then uh, they sent up the 
this the hospital where we were at had a, a NICU, but they didn't have um, pediatric pediatric surgeons, and so they sent it up to uh, the bigger city, and they they said we need her here immediately, and that's when we knew everything was not okay, and that's when I think Megan, you came back in at that point. Yeah, so I I kind of took a little rest up in the room, and then I got um, the call. Um, I don't even think Seth came up. I think it was just the nurse who came in and was like, hey, you need to go to the NICU. You need to go now. Um, and so it went from, like, they're checking her out to something is wrong. Mm. Um, and at that point, like Seth said, we didn't really know what it was. But I got down there, and she was hooked up monitors and they were organizing all these different images to be taken um x-rays or ultrasounds or 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 whatever i had no idea really um at that time what was happening um and then uh they said we're gonna fly her we're gonna helicopter her to the bigger city the hospital um our local children's hospital which is incredible and that I mean, your heart drops and you just realize, like, we're only an hour and 20 minutes away from that hospital. So if you're talking about flying her, like, that's a yeah. that's a big deal. Like, in their mind, an hour and a half was too long, like, too long to wait. Um, I remember them saying, like, she should have already been there, yeah. you know, like, yeah. Once the doctors at the Children's Hospital saw the imaging, they were like, she should already be here. We need her, like, as fast as you can get her here. And so, I mean, I just shake thinking about those those moments. And everything is sort of in slow motion at that point. I, I remember them making calls and, and updating us and something was wrong with the helicopter so they were going to do like regular ground transport and that transport team comes in but they can't just load her up and run i mean she has to they have to finish taking pictures that the hospital needs they have to find it it just took so long in my mind i was like mm. just like can't you just oh. run her there you know yeah. like i could go faster yeah so were you guys able to ride on the helicopter with her no we ended up not um, taking the helicopter, um, and they just took her in an ambulance um, because the helicopter didn't have enough gas or it had too much gas or something. I had had a C-section, <laughs> wow. so thankfully Seth was able to go with her in the ambulance. You're getting in the ambulance with your girl. What is going through your mind right now? The- there's a mix of frustration, trying to be calm, trying to trying to be aware if there's anything that you can or can't do. Um, wondering why things are taking so long. There was a lot of frustration at that point because, like, okay, so there's there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Why there? It seems to be taking so much longer. And and at that point, there's nothing you can do, and you're helpless, and you can't show emotion at all because you know that'll probably just slow things down or maybe stress somebody out so you're trying to like hold inside mm. these feelings of like 
Yeah, because the helicopter couldn't come because it had too much fuel, so it didn't have enough, so it couldn't actually hold the box that Dorothy was lifted in because mm. it wouldn't have been able to lift her. So we've had to burn fuel for half an hour, which is why they had to take <laughs> the ambulance. Oh, and so then by the time they loaded up the ambulance, and then the ambulance drives like 55 the whole way there. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And I, and I know safety-wise it makes sense, but when you're, you're like, I could get here in 45 minutes. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, like there's, there's times I probably get around 60. But you can see all these things in your mind. And the, the part that we really didn't understand is that um, – the team in the back were saving Dorothy's life as we were going up to the hospital. Mm. So me and the driver in this awkward conversation as we drive forward, me wanting to scream, step on it. Yeah. Um, in the back, there's three doctors working um, on Dorothy, trying to keep her alive to make it to the hospital. So that's, you're just constantly waiting to see like, what, what can you do other than just sit here yeah. and, and try to get as much information. I was literally thinking, like, what information can I learn from this guy about how it is to get fast as the hospital? Like, <laughs> like, whatever thing I can do in my head, yeah. try to be useful in some way. Um, but really, you're just sitting awkwardly in a car going 55. Mm. And Megan, how are you feeling in this moment? You're trying to think about recovering yourself. I'm sure you just want to be with your girl. What are you? What thoughts are running through your head? Yeah, so um, they, uh, right before they put Dottie in the carrier at the hospital, the, um, I don't know who it was, the doctors or, or one of the transport people um, said, said, you can kiss her. Mm-hmm. Like, do you want to kiss her? So there's, there's that moment of giving her a kiss, knowing that that might be the last time. Like, she's so sick at this point, and um, we have no understanding of what that sickness is, but we know that she's dying and that um, as they take her away, that might be the last time I see her alive. Mm. Um, and the the paramedic, this woman, um, she says, I'll take care of her like she's my own. Mm. Um, and, and they take her out of there and Seth goes and I'm sitting on this bench and, uh, one of the nurses comes and, uh, sits with me and she says, uh, she prays with me. She's a, a Christian friend that kind of knows people who know us, um, and walks me um, back to my room and, and all I can do is wait. I have to wait for my mom to come to pack up our stuff, to drive me there. And thankfully, um, I had been doing well enough that they discharged me and let me leave on my own, even though I had had a C-section less than 24 hours before wow. at this point. The hospital we, we go to is a great hospital, but you can't be prepared for what it's like when you go in there. No. So we arrive, and I'm following the hugest box I've ever seen with little, little girl, and it was with the doctors all around, and we go through the corridors that is this hospital, and we end up on the, the NICU floor, and the NICU floor is a very busy place, and I've lived over for years, and it still shocked me how busy and how much was going on. I must have seen 8 to 10 to 20 doctors and nurses around Dorothy, mm in the first 15 minutes 
And I don't even think I'm exaggerating. Because when you get in there, there's pods of four babies together. And so there's other babies and nurses. And then there's the teens. And I remember, I remember two people coming up to me. Um, one of the doctors actually were, we are friends with now. Um, I'll use her first name just because I, but because I don't, there's a million people named Emily. So Emily came up to me <laughs> and I remember she was one of the first people and she just had like these eyes that were very sympathetic to what was going on right then. And so she, and then another doctor, and I, he must have been young, but he was, I think he's the anesthesiologist or something, but he kind of talked about what's going on, whether what's going, what they're doing, and and what what had to, what had to be done. But it was so overwhelming when you got into that place. Mm-hmm. You knew it was, that's what exactly you want. You want a million doctors around your kid, but you couldn't comprehend. So then they take they they take Dorothy to the surgery wing, and we go back with the beeper, and that's when. I don't even, I can't, I honestly remember how I got out of the NICU to when Megan came in. Oh, then the fiasco of getting Megan checked back into the hospital. Uh, Megan came in and we thought we could have admitted into the hospital, but there was no paperwork for her getting back into the hospital. So we went to the emergency room entrance, which didn't work out because there was no communication. Because the NICU doctors don't care about Megan. That sounds bad, but they don't. They have a job to do. And so there's no... No one knows that Megan's coming to this hospital and just came 24 hours from surgery herself. Mm. And so we had to, like, make a decision and wait to see if she gets checked in or just come directly up to the floor where we're having the surgery. And I said, don't wait. Just come here now, mm. and we'll figure out the rest later. And so that was, yeah, Megan, you can, you can start from there. Cause I, don't remember, I don't even know what you and your mom went through when you guys arrived. Oh, yeah. Um, so by the time I got to the hospital with my mom, um, Seth was there and his parents were there. And my sister and niece who live closer to this hospital were already there. And um, they come in and find me in the emergency department, totally lost and confused, but bring me up to the Nikki waiting room. And um, yeah, we all were all just sitting there kind of silent and shocked and not knowing, you know, what's coming. We're just waiting to hear from the doctors. So, and so from there, we, the, the doctor does come out. It's like 10 p.m. at this point. So this is just over 24 hours after um, she, she was born at 8.24 p.m. Mm-hmm. Is that right, babe? 20, 8.24? Yeah, about that. And then she, um, so then... So basically 24 hours later, she was getting surgery and the doctor came out and it was the surgeon and it must have been, it was a team of three, I believe. And you could tell in their faces that things were not good. Mm. They, they looked forlorn walking into the room. When we were at our local hospital where Dottie was born, the, um, I don't remember like a name or a diagnosis Mm -hmm. or anything. I just remember sort of the idea that um, her symptoms had not been um, classic for whatever the problem was. So normally kids that have this sort of bowel um, trouble would have been vomiting 
Um, and she was kind of spitting up a little bit, but it would have been this bilious vomiting that's really obvious. And you see it and you think, oh, it's probably this. Mm. Um, you know, uh, which ends up um, called malrotation and um, volvulus. So the volvulus is when your intestines twist and they cut off the movement of fluid, you know, and, and things through your intestines. And she didn't have this sort of obvious symptom. And so that's why it took so long to diagnose when they were waiting and taking pictures and seeing what was happening to her. And then it took sort of an expert surgeon, pediatric surgeon, to look at those images and say, I know exactly what's wrong. You know, and we need to to operate immediately. Um, but it wasn't until after. It wasn't until um, the doctor came in and sort of, I mean, literally drew us a picture of what was happening with Dottie that we knew any real terminology or idea of what had happened. Hmm. All right. So doctors have entered in, and what happens next? So she she comes in just kind but serious, mm-hmm. um, and I remember her sitting like right right in front of Seth and I. We're sitting in these chairs, and we've got family around, and who knows, there might have been other people in there. I don't know. Um, just a public waiting room. Um, and she takes out a paper and she starts, um, drawing us a picture of Dottie's intestines. Four centimeters in from where your small intestine starts is where, um, the intestines twisted. It's called a volvulus. And at that point, from that spot, four centimeters in to your small intestine, which is like 250 inches long or something crazy, um, they started to die. Her small intestine mm. has started to to die. I mean, it doesn't have any blood flow. It doesn't have any oxygen. And we don't know at what point the twist occurred in the previous 24 hours. Um, you know, we don't know how long it has been, but um, as she's walking us through it, she is explaining, like, they took out several inches, um, like six or eight inches, it just initially cut it out. It was just totally dead, damaged, had to um, be removed. But the rest of the small intestine, she said, it doesn't look good, but we want to give it 24 hours just to see if um, after we've untwisted it and straightened it all out um, and now there's oxygen going um, into those intestines if if there'll be any life left in them. Um, and so at that point, we are just going to have to to wait about 24 hours for a second surgery mm-hmm. um, to find out exactly the condition of her small intestine, how much is dead, how much is left, and then what um, the next steps will be at that point. So we're sitting in the waiting room and she's, She's described kind of what's happened with Dottie, what's going on in her body and how sick she is. Um, and she's explaining to us sort of what this means. She does not think that any of Dottie's small intestine is going to 
um, have life in it. She mm-hmm. thinks it's all going to be dead. And without a small intestine, you can't absorb the nutrition from your food. So um, when you're an adult, your small intestine is like the length of a football field. And it, it as your food travels through it, it, that's where all the nutrients and all the nutrition comes out of your food and goes into your body and is processed. And that's what gives you your strength, your ability to grow and, and thrive. And so without that ability, she's not going to be able to get the nutrition she needs. And so she's going to need IV nutrition. Um, and she's walking us through what that means. You have um, sort of these central um, veins in your body that can be used for this IV nutrition. There's a limited number of them. Um, as you run the tubing through them to get the nutrition um, into your body, they can have problems. They can break mm-hmm. um, or burst, and sometimes they recover and sometimes they don't. And so you're always sort of against the clock of life of how many central um, veins does will your child have that are usable to provide mm-hmm. this nutrition um, she'll be in and out of the hospital for painful surgeries. She'll, she'll get infections and the line infections will damage these, um, main veins and, and, and so she'll just have all of this, this trouble, um, through, through life. And so for me, I know I was sitting there just imagining this helpless baby and then little child in and out of the hospital body that's bruised and broken and and hurting and um, she talks about the liver and how the liver is going to be working in a way it's not used to and so she's going it's going to go bad and you're going to the little girl's going to need a, a liver transplant um, and those aren't always successful and so there's that trauma that's going to happen and as she talks us through it, hmm. it was so matter of fact. It she was she had she was kind, but just matter of fact. If that makes sense, like she wasn't mean, but she was like, "This is what it's going to be. This mm-hmm. is going to be her life. If she survives, this will be her life, and this will be your life. Your life will be." all about feeding her, all about providing her this nutrition, all about being in and out of the hospital. That's all you will do, all you will think about. That's it. Mm. And so we're sitting in this waiting room, sobbing. I mean, I'm just, I remember looking around and seeing tears streaming down the faces of everyone in the room. And hearing her just paint this picture of despair for the life of our little girl. If she survives, if she survives, this is what it's going to look like. This will be her life. Um, And, I mean, in that moment, what, yeah, you're, you're nearly hopeless. There's just, you don't know what to do. That's all you know at this point. That's all we knew was what she was telling us. Seth, what's, you know, from a dad's perspective, what's going on in your mind right now? Um, there's there's the, the slow motion and there's the numbness immediately. Mm. And thinking about what, and, and not really, 
comprehending what that means for what's next. Mm-hmm. Um, and just trying to make sure you understand everything. And honestly, I don't remember the feelings at that moment all that clearly. Because mm-hmm. I, I was still just... I just remember being in the room. That's it. And I remember, the, I remember the, the diagram, and I remember the drawing. I, 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 I'm having trouble so, so far, so so much that I can't remember when we knew the information we did, because mm-hmm. it was it was such a blur of when everything happened. Yeah. And because I remember when we when they did the first surgery, they took out that that first that first uh, the first section that was completely dead. But there was the other stuff that was basically dead. But she was going to give it 24 hours to see if it would live. And then after that was when we'd have to make the hardest decision of our lives. Mm. And as so many people are listening right now and they're like, okay, you guys have relationships with the Lord. What is going on? Are you wrestling with God? Are you yelling at God? Like, what, what does that look like? I don't remember ever being mad at God. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't tend to go the angry route emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there was a lot of why, like, why is this happening? Why isn't she healthy? Why? Um, but in despair, like a desperation of, of, you know, what's happening with our child and mm-hmm. why is this happening to us type of questions. Mm-hmm. Um but but everything is chaos. Everything in your head is chaos. Everything in your body is is you just don't even know what you're thinking or how you're feeling. Um, and uh, um, yeah, as, as Seth alluded to, um, she I, I, this is always astounds uh, me. Um, still, when I think back, she the doctor um, she has painted this picture. Of Jody's future, if if big if if she lives mm-hmm. through the surgery, and she paints this picture of what her life will be like, and she proceeds to say basically, in 24 hours when we go back in for surgery, and when we find what I think we will find, which is her intestines totally dead, you will get to make the decision that you can, we can sew her up and you can hold her and you can say goodbye. Oh, my gosh. Or we can do the surgery to take out what's dead and see if she lives and has some kind of life in the future. I mean, to even say it out loud is like, how how is that even right? How is that even a choice? But at the same time, my mama's heart has this picture yeah. of a child just suffering. Yeah. I mean, just in and out of the hospital, sick, sick, sick kid. Um, and so I know in my head, like, how can you give me that choice? But in my heart for my baby, I want her to be alive and healthy. I don't want her to be alive and sick and in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but but this choice, this looming choice, is just left with us yeah. um, as, as the conversation comes to a, a conclusion. And 
the doctor leaves. Okay, so you guys have 24 hours to wait, and what does that look like? Um, <laughs> the first night we oh. were staying in the NICU back room, <laughs> it was it was oh, a nightmare. Oh no! It, <laughs> so- was, it was it was madness. It was, but because Megan's in pain, so we're 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 put, she's going around in a stroller. And it's not stroller, excuse me, babies, you know, a wheelchair. And because it hurts for her to move anything, yeah. they don't have a place for us to stay around there. It's already 10 o'clock at night. So they let us stay in a milk pumping room <laughs> where the <laughs> mother's using. So <laughs> are we allowed to say that, by the way? I'm yes, sure, 100%. So we totally hooked us up. <laughs> and we stayed there and we. Had the hardest night of our lives Ugh. in the one of the most uncomfortable ways to sleep ever. Oh my gosh! In the NICU, probably not thirty feet from our child, frankly, because mm-hmm. she was in a couple couple uh, uh, pods over, and just I were just laying there thinking, what what is what is going on right now? Like I don't, I can't comprehend. I am laying on this big chair holding my wife who just had a C-section waiting to find out if our child's going to live. And it it seemed like it was a lot of busyness, meaning we had to solve all these problems constantly. If it wasn't figuring out where we're going to stay. And so for me, my mind was occupied with, well, what do we have to do next? What do we have to do next? Because... Twenty uh, forty-eight hours ago, we were hoping. Oh, I hope we don't have to have a C-section, so mm. that we can get a passport in time to make the conference in Thailand mm. here in a month and a half. So every worry I had was obsolete and meaningless at this point, and everything in the past doesn't matter anymore, except this mo- moment, which is coming up in twenty-four hours from the surgery. Mm. After the doctor left, we were, they got Dottie settled back into the NICU and we were allowed to go in. And Seth had already been in the NICU, but I had not. Um, and so he wheeled me in uh, to go see Dottie. And you have to read this paper to ask you questions like, have you had a cold? Have you been around oh, anybody yeah. who's been sick? Um, you have to kind of basically say like, no, like there's no chance that I'm going to get any of these really fragile babies because it's a, a big room, you know, divided with, with tons, dozens of babies. But I had been. I had had a cold for, like, three days. Mm. And I I remember that helped me stand up, and I was reading this list. I, um, I couldn't even get the answer out before I started crying because I knew, like, as I was saying it, I can still picture it. I am reading these questions and I'm saying, I'm sick. I've had a cold. And I'm falling back into the wheelchair, sitting back down, crying. And in my head, I'm thinking, my baby's going to die. And I'm not even going to get to see her because I've had a cold. Like, they're not going to let me in to see her again. Oh, I still think about that at times, but uh, the nurse or the gal at the desk, she gets up and she goes and talks to the head nurse and thankfully God is so good. Um, They give me a mask and they let, they let me in. Mm. And um, we find out um, as we leave the NICU a couple months later, 
um, we find out from a few of the nurses that we've gotten to know that on that first night, nobody thought she was going to live. I'm pretty sure they only let me in sick because they thought that our daughter was going to die. And they knew what I was thinking was like, this is her last chance to see her child. Um, And thankfully that was not that ultimate outcome, but um, yeah, that was, it was hard when we got to see her and you could, you couldn't touch her. You couldn't hold her. You just had to look at her. So sick with her intestines out of her body and she's swollen and just doesn't look anything like, the baby that you said goodbye to just a few hours before. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's from there. Oh man, so I, I assume do you know what time of the day? I don't think it matters, but from there we were waiting for the scheduled surgery that next day, and I don't even remember how that day went. I just remember going into this where we had the meeting with the surgeons, and the surgeon who we first talked to wasn't a regular at that hospital so that we got introduced to our, who's now currently our surgeon as well. And they're, they're working together for the next surgeon. And that's where they, uh, I think that's when we found out the news. No, we found the news before that in, in the NICU. Um, but we had to make the decision. We stayed the night in the NICU, um, lactation room. And, uh, the next day, you know, got, you get a little bit of sleep, but just enough quiet time um, to kind of clear your heart a little bit and, and get just a half a step away from the craziness um, and the immediate emotion and everything that's happened. And we're able to, to talk to people slowly and find out more and more about what's happened and how did it happen and how did it come to be. And um, so all of that happened on a Monday night and her next surgery is scheduled for Wednesday, um, like around noon or something. Um, and so we have about a day to, to kind of process things, talk things over. Our family and friends are gathering around us and we're just kind of figuring things out, um, next steps and, and what everything means. And, um, this time, surgery is different because she's stabilized. They've been watching her, monitoring her. We get to walk with her um, through the halls to the surgery, um, and they take us to this sort of pre-surgery room, and the two surgeons come in, and they once again kind of explain the options. Mm-hmm. You know, when we go in there, we will discover if any of her small intestine is alive, we'll come back and we'll tell you. Um, and at that point, if if everything is dead, once again, make, they explain, we can close her up and you can say goodbye, or we can do the surgery to take out what's dead and see what happens if she lives and if she, you know, can come back from, from this trauma. And so we're, we're praying, like crazy and crying and talking and and again it seems so obvious like we love life we love god and you think yes she should live let her live if she's gonna live but at the same time i'm wrestling with this this picture this life of pain and i'm questioning like are we being selfish Mm -hmm. like these are the thoughts in my head am i being selfish to make, you know, make them try, you know, to give her life 
about a life that's going to be awful? Is that just because I don't want to lose my child? You know, or like, what does that mean? You know, and wrestling with like, am I a bad person for even thinking that that's an option? You know, to, to say goodbye, like, like, I don't want to say goodbye, but I don't want her to be in pain. And it's just this awful conflict within my heart and my mind. And we're talking it through and, and they come in with the news that she was. The doctor was right. Everything is dead. There's um, not not any small intestine left um, alive. And uh, so we ask again just for a little bit of time to talk and to pray through that. And I remember calling my pastor and him and his wife were on, on their way um, to see us at the hospital and just laying it out like this is this is where we're at. This is what's happening. You know, what do we do? And, you know, of course, the first initial reaction is like, let her live, you know, like, of course, but then you stop and you think like, but yeah, that's hard to know that the consequences of that decision could be really awful. Um, And so we, we say goodbye to them and we just, Seth and I look at each other and we say, we have to give her that chance for life. Like we have to, we don't know what God's plan is. Yeah. So we have to give her the possibility and the option for something greater than we can imagine at this point. And that's really what it came down to for me was, I don't know what God has planned for her. I don't know what healing or or not mm-hmm. that there might be in the future. And it doesn't matter if my whole life is all about feeding her and taking care of her, if that's what it's supposed to be about. I'm okay with that. Um, and it's going to be awful and hard if she's in pain all the time, but God is still a good God and he loves her more than I ever could. And he loves me more than I can imagine. And he will be with us through every step of that, whether it's pain or whether it's happiness, his joy will linger and guide us through that. And for me, that's what it came down to. And Seth can speak, um, to to what was happening in his mind. But ultimately, like when I looked at Seth and we had to make that final decision, those were my thoughts of like, well, we just don't know what God has planned. So who am I to to make that decision? Like do whatever you can mm-hmm. to save her and we'll just see what God, um, what he has up his sleeves. One thing I appreciate, because um, as Nick and I were going back and forth and just hashing out this horrible decision and the one thing I I, I, I remember like, like we got we got we got to call we got, let's let's call Pastor Pastor uh, Joe and and what I appreciate about that call is they understood both sides yeah and that's what I've always appreciated this is Megan's pastor kind of as her spiritual um, development really um, took off in college and he, the way him and his wife Lila just understood both sides. And there wasn't like this, like, oh, of course you should do this. Like, you know, there's no, there was none of that. There was mm-hmm. just understanding. And I kept thinking, like, this isn't a decision that just affects Dottie, but this affects Megan and my marriage from here on out. Yeah. And we can't make this decision unless we're both 100% on the same page here. Mm-hmm. And we got to get on that page because this will bring resentment in our marriage. This will bring what if, what if all the time. Mm-hmm. 
So we have to both be in it 100%. And, and I feel like it took us a while to kind of go back and forth, not because we both, either, either side knew what we should do, but we were just trying to think through this. And I was thinking about how can I go, how do I live the next step yeah. with my decision? How do I go back to who I was, who we were? How do, what, who am I right now? Yeah. And all those things were just just swirling in this this mix of, as Nate says, like, am I being selfish? Am I am I really thinking about this with my heart or am I doing it with my head? And am I really do I really believe God's in control? And so after after we prayed and we cried one last time, we said, okay, we're we're in this together. We're making this decision together, and this is what we stand by, and we're all in. Mm-hmm. We don't care what we have to do. We don't care what our life is going to look like. I and mean, we, but we, we want to be in the get together because that's the only way we're going to go forward. And the surgeons came in, and to their credit, even though if you ask me, they almost painted a picture like you're kind of it's, you're kind of doing the right thing if you let her go. They, they didn't, you'd never say that, but there's, they just give you so many negatives that it feels that way. Yeah. But as soon as we told them our decision, there was no no expression in their face that said, like, disappointment in us. It's like, oh, they're like, okay, let's go ahead. And they just did their job. And because that would have crushed us Yeah, that moment. Anything could have crushed us at that moment because we were already crushed. And so then we just sat and I think we had to get out of the room. So <laughs> they gave us the room for a while eventually, but that was hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so after surgery, the surgery of what it could be was successful. The ultimate um, final was that there was about three centimeters on the other end of Dobby's small intestine that were healthy. Question mark. Um, and so the surgeon sewed together these sort of, if you can imagine, two sort of damaged ends, one about four centimeters, one about three centimeters of small intestine together. And literally it's like a hope and a prayer. Like are, are the stitches going to hold? Like the skin, you know, the tissue wasn't strong and healthy like you would like, but there was, they kept as much as they could, which is, like nothing, basically. Um, and uh, from that point, it was just day by day, like what's happening, watching her, um, seeing how she was doing, just spending all of our time, which thankfully we had nothing else to do um, in this season. So we could spend all of our time with her. Um, and uh, a week later, they did have to go back in and fix the stitches because there were some leakage, um, and they put in a drain to kind of help things um, clear out of her abdomen while the stitches were healing, um, the, the tissue was healing together, and, and it was just, just day by day, and those days turned into weeks, and ultimately those weeks turned into months, and as time goes by, you just realize, like, she's just getting stronger. She's looking more and more like herself. She, um, you know, is getting healthier. She's responding well to everything they're doing. And we, during this time, were also learning so much more about what had happened to her and possibilities for the future. Um, and we had really... One really incredible opportunity to speak with the, the um, pediatric gastroenterologist um, who works with kids on, it's called TPN, Total Parental Nutrition. That's that IV nutrition that we mentioned before. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and she painted us. Talk about black and white. She painted us a completely different picture of a potential future for Dottie um, a couple weeks after her surgery took place. And um, Seth is really great about um, sharing that part of the story. And it's just such a such an eye-opening and hopeful moment for us when we got to talk to her. Yeah. When we started talking to her, we couldn't believe we were talking about the same thing. Mm. She's like, oh, no, no, I just... I just sent home a kid who's been on TPN for 21 years. She never needed a, a liver a, um, transplant. <laughs> what? Mm. What are you talking about? Like, uh, she's like, oh no, no, that's that's the way we use um, one of the we put in Dorothy's IVs called lipids. Like the lipids we use now aren't as harmful harmful to the liver as they once were, and so no people can live a full life on TPN. <laughs> wow. And and I was like, what? And because the other thing that we were told is in two years, we would have to get an intestinal transplant. Um, and so so basically what we were told is not only will she probably not live through this and she'll have a horribly difficult life, in two years you're going to have a transplant, and that's only about a 50% survival rate for that transplant. And then after that, there's in the next three years, only 50% of those people usually survive as well. Mm. So... This whole life we thought we were living transformed immediately talking to this GI doctor. And she, she's like, oh, no, no, we, we, I actually would suggest you don't do an intestinal transplant because you can live a more full life on TPN and be a healthier life without, the, the, without that added risk. And oh Megan and I were like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it was just confusing. So... Finally, so then we started learning, like, what does this world look like? And if nothing else, that is something, if, if you have kids with high medical needs, like, people have done this stuff. This, mm-hmm. is, this is stuff that people are dealing with and get into a community that knows about this yes. as soon as possible. Yeah. Because knowledge is everything. If we know, if we know that, you know, two weeks earlier, it, it would have been a whole lot easier conversation. Yeah. Because it wasn't even wouldn't even really be a question. Because, but that's you know it's always hindsight's twenty twenty. And I and, and honestly, I can't imagine any scenario where Megan and I would have had to really get down to what we believe mm-hmm. in that moment. So I know our relationship is different because of that, and stronger than it's been before because of that. Even though it was the hardest moments of our life, of our married life, of our and, and we could probably both say of our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the GI doctor then tells us how life could look, and we start getting connected with other people who have similar issues. And that life is still continuing to this day, where we're constantly meeting people who have similar issues with Dorothy, mm-hmm. who have lived through um, longer times. Some of them who lived back in the '70s and '80s, who are surviving until now, because there just wasn't that many people who were surviving on TPN before this. But now we have people in their '50s and '60s who've lived a life on TPN. So there's a whole lot more information and just uh, resources out there. Um, but man, I tell you that that day, this, uh, it's like the skies opened up, and, mm. and it was it was it was a, the sun was out that day, and it was no longer the just the gloom. I I still can't get over. There's a contrast in what life could look like. Mm-hmm. So what now does life look like with Dottie? How far out are we? How long has this been? Uh, so we, um, Dottie was in the hospital for, I believe it was 75 days. And 
We learned so much during that time. Um, We really um, connected with our doctors and our nurses, and we became advocates asking questions and um, just really um, learning as much as we could during that time. And we got to take Dottie home. We were with us parents who were just an incredible support to us, and she just kept living and thriving Mm. and learning. I mean, she started sitting up at like five months old and, you know, crawling and hitting these traditional milestones, um, which were just incredible. I mean, she's just, I might be biased here, the cutest little kid. (laughs) She is, Uh, for sure. (laughs) And... And, I mean, we had the medical stuff. She, the TPN are these, these cords that come, you know, they're connected to her body internally and they're connected to pumps externally and bags of fluid that we have to carry around in a backpack. And in the beginning, she was connected to her TPN for like 20 hours a day. Hmm. And so um, we would have to do a very clean procedure to hook her up. And then um, 20 hours later, a clean procedure to unhook her, and then four hours later, hook her up. So there was an aspect that was kind of all-consuming. You know, you you were always mindful of those cords. You were always sort of watching the clock of, like, when do we, um, you know, need to, to unhook her and hook her back up, and how does that look? And you know, not tugging. I mean, you look at her, and there's this cord wire thing coming out of her chest. And you're like, oh, I don't want, I don't want to pull that. I don't want to tug on that. You know, like that's her lifeline. Um, but we, we just learned more and more every day. We got more comfortable with all of that stuff every day. And now she's two and a half years old, and she's a Spitfire. <laughs> she's got this crazy long curly hair. I don't know where that came from. And she's already talking up a storm and counting and knows her alphabet and um, is just chock full of emotions and, um, you know, hilarity and and all of that. It's just, it's been a joy. Um, Early on, we were, um, you can have a line break, like outside of her body, the, the line that's that goes into her body can um, kind of pop almost like a balloon and you have to go into the hospital and get that fixed. So that's one problem we're always aware of. So that happened twice early on and then we got some protective vests for to wear and we haven't had that problem again. Um, She can also get a line infection, which is sort of our day-to-day concern um, because it's not necessarily something we can control completely. Mm -hmm. It can be an internal infection that happens. Um, not just an external exposure of, you know, being unclean or something. Um, and she hasn't had a line infection in over a year since last Easter. Mm. So that's, that's huge. I mean, we I still touch her forehead like 15 times a day to see <laughs> if she has a fever because the second she has a fever, we go to the hospital. But... I mean, she's just, it's amazing how well she's doing and how much she's thriving and all of the choices that our doctors make on a monthly and weekly basis um, to care for her. Like her body is just loving, 
you know everything. Seth, you mentioned that when you guys were going to have to make that decision, the importance of what it was going to be to be on the same page. You knew that this was going to impact your marriage. So could you speak to marriages specifically that deal with special needs children or medical needs children's and what one piece of advice would you have for them? (laughs) Communication is always advice. Mm -hmm. You can never over communicate, which no guy wants to hear. (laughs) Um, But having, there's a lot of emotions that, that go in and out. And sometimes you don't have time for the emotions, Mm -hmm. which is crazy because we will sometimes hurt each other's feelings, but it's, it's an emergency. We don't have time to deal with it at that time. You just go and fix what needs to be fixed. So then we have to figure out, okay, how do we navigate still each other as emotional beings mm-hmm. <laughs> we need to take care of? So the communication, which I have so much to learn about, is so helpful, though, because then you have these, these ways of understanding each other mm. when everything is wrong, when we don't have an answer for something that could have gone very wrong, because we still have scares here and there that, like, anytime her line can get caught or on something, or if, or if something's not primed right, or if, did you, did, was that wiped correctly? Did Dottie sneeze? There's all sorts of things that could be very much an emergency immediately, mm-hmm. or not. and so having like we are kind of um hyper aware of certain things certain alarms and and each other's emotions because i i realize like when one of us is like in a hurry or like something could be wrong we both are on like full alert mode immediately Mm -hmm. because that's just kind of the life you're always you're you're always you're always expecting to possibly be going to the hospital even though we haven't been since Mm -hmm. um december um that's something you're always thinking of. So if you don't have that, that chance to, to communicate and talk with each other and really something we're trying to figure out eventually, take time to get to know, keep knowing each other because yeah. if you're just in emergency mode the whole time, you can't, mm-hmm. that's not sustainable for your relationship. So you, you that communication and being, and being able to joke with each other. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you do without a sense of humor. I don't know exactly. how you get through any of this. Exactly. That's why you can call it the milking room instead of the lactation room. <laughs> it's good. We, we, need, we needed a little humor break right there. Thank you for providing that, Seth. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Oh. oh, my goodness. Um, one last question just for each of you. What I know that God has probably taught you a ton through all of this, but what's one takeaway for you as you've navigated this part of your story and that God's taught you? And Megan, you can go first. Um, for me, I think it's, um, it's living with uncertainty and like being okay with that. Mm. Like it's, it's all, we all have struggles, things that we, you know, try to fix in ourselves, you know, fear or whatever it is, but, um, just being okay, not knowing what's going to come next. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be in the hospital tonight. Mm-hmm. That could happen, but not letting that like rule my mind or my emotions um, to be aware, but not controlled by the unknown um, and the possibility of something um, scary or hard that could be right around the corner. Um, yeah. So just kind of settling into that. And it's, it's just a part of, of who I am now. And I'm not anxious about it. I'm not, you know, stressed about it. It's just like God, God's got it. He's gonna whatever it is around the bend. 
Mm-hmm. Um, God's going to walk with me through that. And I'm aware of some of the possibilities. I'm also very aware that I don't know all of the possibilities, good or bad, you know, going either way. I don't know what, what could possibly be next. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't need to know. And I'm just going to walk alongside God and do the best that I can to care for my children and my family um, as I can. I love that. What about you, Seth? I think she stole my answer a little oh, bit. Oh, man, Megan, you can't goes, do that. I think it goes a little different ways. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it was knowing, like, a God's got this. Mm. And there was a lot of lament. Um, we had just moved to Mongolia for a new leadership position that we were kind of excited to see how God was going to use that position. And I had, we had a lot of plans and um, flying all over the country, getting to know people and teachers and leaders. And then it was gone. Yeah. And then we were given the prospect of this is your new life, of your daughter's going to be in the hospital all the time. That's just how it's going to be. Yet, immediately, a good buddy of mine who's been in Mongolia for years and years stepped into the role that I was currently in, and he's amazing. And he's perfect for the role. He just wasn't at a place to take that role earlier. So it was this cool like answer to prayer immediately. Knowing, like, oh, he's going to step up? That's amazing. Like, just, just excited. Usually you don't always get to see God, like, answer prayers, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. But that was a cool, like, answer right away. And then our life with Dottie, my life looks very different right now. But there's a lot of really cool things I've been able to do, and we as a family have been able to do, just in moving back home, being with family, living life in a small town in Oregon, which I never <laughs> thought I'd do in a million years. But there's been a lot of just fun and joy yeah. in this small town, which I never expected as a guy who's been living overseas for so long, that there's so many cool things that God, I know the word blesses is overused, but blesses you with mm-hmm. that you never expect. And so this has been the hardest two and a half years of our life, but there's been some really just fun, enjoyable times throughout all of the hard emotional laments as well. Mm, I love that. So yeah, God, yeah, so God's got you. <laughs> yes, yes, He does. Um, Seth and Megan, I know that everyone is going to want to connect with you on social media, on your website. So how can they do that? Well, I would suggest following Megan on Instagram. She is dot along with us. And also feel free to check out our website, which is also dotalongwithus.com. Seth and Megan, thank you so much for taking us on your journey. Thank you for your transparency and your vulnerability. And we're just so excited for you and what God has in store for your sweet family. So thank you for sharing your time with us today. You're welcome. Thank you too, Bethany. Absolutely. All I can say after my conversation with Megan and Seth is that God is faithful. He is faithful to walk through each and every trial that we that we navigate, and he's been faithful for them, and I promise that he will be faithful to you. Friend, be encouraged that if your life feels like it's out of control and you don't know what tomorrow will look like, that he already holds tomorrow, that you can trust in him, and that he loves you greatly, that he's a good, good father, and he has his best for you. I hope this story impacted your heart. I hope if this story, maybe you know someone in your life that's struggling with not knowing what's going to happen next or um, dealing with tragic things that happen, please share this episode. I think it will mean more than you know. So we can't wait to share another story of God's redemption next time. But until then, you keep living those brave stories for Jesus.
I wanted to take a moment to give a shout out to our sponsor of the Bringing Her Hope podcast, Friends of Hope. Friends of Hope is a nonprofit ministry dedicated to the support of Christian radio, Christian events, new media, and activities that share the good news of Jesus Christ. So thanks again, Friends of Hope, for sponsoring the Bringing Her Hope podcast so we can continue to share more brave and beautiful stories of God's redemption.